Alright, today we are going to begin a new series. It is called, I grabbed the wrong, oh there we go, Seeing Clearly. <clears throat> We're going to be taking a trip through the Gospel of John. And a couple people have asked me how long we'll be in the Gospel of John, and my answer, quite frankly, is I don't know. Um, we're going to go through the Gospel of John, the whole Gospel of John. It is a wonderful book. Um, it is an important book, as are all the books in the Bible. But in particular, the Gospel of John, I anticipate, I fully expect, will help us all to see clearly. And let me explain to you what I mean. Every two or three years, <clears throat> I start to get headaches. They're like just little dull headaches, and I start to eat two to six Motrin a day, every four or five hours. And... I always wonder what's going on, and it takes me about a month, and then I realize I haven't had my eyes checked in quite a while. So I go to the eye doctor, and I got my eyes checked, and sure enough, he'll say, yeah, you need a new prescription. So then I go and I sit out at the table outside of the, the room with all the cool equipment that I don't know what it does, and for about an hour, I go through trying to pick a pair of glasses. It's uh, not easy to do by yourself. There's a lot of pressure. As a husband, if I come home with bad glasses, I got two to three years of trouble. So we go through the process, and I leave there, and I'm always really excited because I know in about a week I'm going to come in and pick up my new glasses, and I'm going to start seeing clearly. I'm going to notice that day when I pick up my glasses that there are leaves on trees that I can see. I drive down the highway, and I'll see things in the hills in the distance I never knew were there. I'll pick up a book, and the words look crisp, and, and everything's great. And I, I think, why did I wait so long to get my eyes checked? And then two or three years go by, and the whole thing plays out again. Well, in the Gospel of John, what we're going to do is we're going to see the, the great optometrist. We all have problems, whether we're Christian or non-Christian, with seeing God, seeing God clearly at times. We allow things to distort our vision of God. Sometimes it's assumptions, sometimes they're expectations, misperceptions, and if I could be so blunt speaking for myself too, we can use ignorance as another thing that causes us not to see God clearly. So as we go through the Gospel of John, we're going to have our eyes clear. We're going to have the, the yuck cleaned off of the lens so we can get a more full biblical perspective of who, in fact, Jesus is. Now, today we're not going to be able, we're not going to leave here today and know who Jesus is in a fullest sense of the word. It's an impossibility. We'll spend all of eternity getting to know who Jesus is. But what I'd like to do today is allow John, writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to give us an introduction to who Jesus is. As we do that, over the next however many weeks, we're going to see this Jesus in action. And as we have the foundation properly laid of understanding who he is, we'll get to know him more fully. A question you can ask people if you ever want to spark an interesting conversation is this. Who is Jesus? I'll ask you guys that question. Who is Jesus? Son of God, someone said? All right, you can stay. Anybody else? <laughs> It's a good answer, the Son of God. I know a lot of people who, who um, are not church-dwelling folks who will say Jesus was a good teacher. Some people say Jesus was a prophet. You'll even find people nowadays who will say Jesus never even existed. He's a figment of people's imagination. As Christians, we would say that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the Savior. He came, he died for our sins, he rose from the dead, and he ascended to heaven. He'll return from heaven one day, but while he's there, he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. A difficult question you can ask a Christian person is, how do you know that? You can ask the same question as someone who says Jesus was a prophet. How do you know that? Someone says Jesus never existed. How did you know that? Well, we're going to get into the how did you know that part. Because you could know a lot of stuff about God. 
without knowing God particularly well. You could know a lot of facts about Jesus, but not really know Jesus well. When we're done with this sermon series, my hope, my expectation is that all of us will know Jesus a whole lot better, not just about him, but we'll know him. John says he wrote his gospel in uh, chapter 20, verse 31, for a particular purpose, and that purpose is, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's my hope and expectation. It's why God had this book written. It's why we're studying it, and I look forward to seeing what he will do through it over the coming weeks. So let's start in the beginning of the book, shall we not? The first 18 verses of the Gospel of John are some of the most well-known verses and truly some of the most difficult verses to understand. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That's some meaty theological text right there. i got to give you a warning. This is not going to be a very entertaining sermon for you today. Probably not going to be a lot of laughs. It's probably going to be a lot of uh, meaty stuff we're going to chew on. But it's important. Because we can't, we can't come to know Jesus intimately unless we understand who he is foundationally. And that's what we have in these first 18 verses. These first 18 verses are then explained in the next 20-odd chapters of the Gospel of John. So let's make sure we have a foundation on which to stand on as we go through. If you were going to meet someone new for the first time, what would be the first thing you would do? Probably ask a few questions, no? What type of questions would you ask? You meet someone you've never met them before, what are you going to ask them? What's your name? I like them. And, and guess what? We're going to look at those questions today. What's your name? What's your background? What do you do? What do we have in common? You see, the common question is important. I'm not going to get there yet. But the more we have in common with the person, the better we get to know them. So John gives us an introduction to a man named Jesus. And John says to us, in the beginning was the Word. What's your name? The Word. It's kind of like The Rock. You ever watch wrestling? You got the Word and the Rotten now. Why would John choose the name, the Word, for Jesus? Why not say, in the beginning was Jesus? Why not say, in the beginning was God's Son? Why not say, in the beginning was the Word? Isn't that an awkward title? 
You ever wonder why? I mean, these are ver- this is a verse we all, we've all heard. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we don't ever want to say, why the Word? That's part of, the, part of the reason. John wrote to a... Uh, the neat thing about the Bible is it's written with immediate significance perpetually. It's not an outdated book. Somehow, God, being God, was able to communicate through the written word, in this instance, about 2,000 years ago, with direct pertinence to our day today. Some people who read this book, just like some people who read John's account back in the day, would be Jewish. They'd have a, or in today's sense, they'd have an Old Testament understanding. And the word will be very meaningful to them. Because when you go through the Old Testament and you look at what is meant by God's word, you see it as how God reveals himself to humanity. He gave his word through the prophets. His word was recorded through scripture. He, as you read through the Psalms, you'll see numerous references to the word. God's word is how God reveals himself fully. But there was another audience, a larger audience, that wouldn't understand that content. And John was speaking to them, too. See, there was a man who lived 500 B.C. named Heraclides. Everyone's a big fan of Heraclides, right? You all know about him? Good. Heraclides was uh, called the weeping prophet. He lived in in, uh, the area of Ephesus. And what he did was he came up with this uh, term called the the logos. Translate into the word from Greek. And what it was was his attempt to explain the functioning of everything. that, That there was some entity that controlled everything. And he called that entity the Word. And if you understood how things worked and the mysteries of the things, you would understand the Word. Very, we call kind of a New Agey spiritual feel to it. Well, Heraclides, Lagos, was um, embraced by people. In fact, by the time that Jesus was born, there was currency that floated through Ephesus with Heraclides' image upon it. And a lot of the great philosophers of the time Took, took up his teachings and expanded on it. People like Philo of Alexandria or Plato would probably be a name that you would better understand. And what they did was they took this, this concept of the Word and explained the universe around it. Now, we do that, not we, hopefully, but people do that today. People come up with kernels of truth. Heraclides knew there was apparent disorder when you look at things, but there was really structure and order behind it. But he tried to explain that with a lie. A lot of people do that today, too. They'll use concepts like lowercase g, God. Well, my God would let anyone into heaven if they just tried their best. Well, they use a speck of truth in there. There is a God, there is a heaven, and people get to go, but then they distort it based off an assumption. Or you have world religions all over the place that, that will you know, have different paths that lead to God. And, and we say, all paths lead to God if people truly seek Him. Well, there is a path that leads to God, but not all paths lead to God. People create their own truth. Think of Paul in Acts 17 at the Areopagus. He sees the uh, statues of different gods, and there's one to an unknown God. And Paul says, let me tell you who this unknown God is who you worship. John says, let me tell you who this Lagos is that you've heard about. To the Jewish person, he says, let me tell you who the word really is. Why the word? It's a dual meaning, all-encompassing term. It makes sense to the Jew. It makes sense to the Gentile. It makes sense to us. What is the word? It is the force. It is the power. It is the unifying uh, truth behind and that directs everything. It is, in fact, God. Okay? So, what's your name? God looks at you and says, my name's the word. Do you understand what he's saying? I am the truth. 
Well, we'll see a little later on in John. He'll also say, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus' name is the Word because he is what everyone craves to know. He is, in fact, as we'll see right here, God. What's your background? You ask the person after you get their name. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Sometimes I think if God took an AP English class, he'd fail it, because I don't know that's grammatically structured, and that was always why I didn't do well in English. I, I wanted to have more of a divine writing style. I wasn't a Christian at the time. It's kind of an awkward construction, isn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The depth to those two verses is amazing. This is what it's saying. I ask someone when I meet them, where did you grow up? Where are you from? What's your family like? Jesus answers that question. <laughs> where did I grow up? I didn't. What do you mean you didn't grow up? How old are you? I, I just am. Well, how many candles do you put on the cake? Oh, they don't fit. Why? Because you can't count eternity. Do you understand this, folks? I love Christmas. Baby Jesus sits in the manger, right? He turns one the year after Christmas, no? Sometimes we think Jesus is probably, you know, if you keep counting heaven, 2,000 and change. Jesus didn't begin in the manger. Do you understand? That is a very important concept. Jesus was born in the manger. It's going to be a lot of meat to the Gospel of John as a person. But he was in the beginning. He wasn't created in the beginning. He was in the beginning. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. You know who created? Not just Daddy God. Jesus. When, when God spoke everything into existence, do you know who did the speaking? Jesus. We're going to talk about this in a second. But it, sometimes we have this misperception that you have, you have in, invisible Father God who made everything. And then on Christmas morning, he made baby Jesus, who grew into a man. And you have Tinkerbell, Holy Spirit, that kind of flies throughout the universe. That is not God. In the beginning was the Word. Who is the Word? Jesus. Jesus is eternal. So you ask him, where did you grow up? I didn't. Where are you from? I have always been. Omniscient, omnipotent God is Jesus. You thought Wednesday was meaty, huh? Wait till we get through this one. Like I said, it's not going to tie up nicely. What's your family like? Understand this. I'll give you, I'll give you two big terms. You could... You can pull them out if you want to make someone feel just completely unintelligent, which is really God-honoring and loving, okay? You know what the Trinity is? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who would like to articulate the difference between the ontological and economic Trinity for me? It's not that hard. Can I explain what I mean? The ontological Trinity is very important to understand. The ontological Trinity is the essence of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All it's saying, the Bible teaches, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal and one. There is no difference in essence or being between God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? The economic trinity. It's a big fancy word that I finally worked up the courage in seminary after a year to say, what's economy have to do with the trinity? It means how something works. The economic trinity explains the functioning of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they function like this. God the Father is in charge. Not because he's stronger, mightier, or more powerful. It's because the three figures in the trinity, one God in three persons, the three figures within the trinity have decided that the functioning of them will be the Father sends the Son. The Son works 
does the Father's will. Okay? That does not mean you have Daddy God and little, little Jesus God, and the Daddy tells Jesus, you will obey me. Jesus chooses to submit himself to the Father's will. They are both God. The Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus to those who love him. The Holy Spirit has been around a long time before Jesus went back to heaven. He does much work, but the primary interaction we have with the Holy Spirit today is he dwells within the believer. Think about that concept. God, who created everything, lives inside of us. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But the economic versus ontological trinity is understand this. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is not just a person who came down from heaven and lived amongst us. He is fully God. But he has submitted himself to the will of the Father. I do not expect that that sits real easily right now, but we need to understand that premise as we go through the Gospel of John. So, what's your name? The Word. Where are you from? Always been. Been from everywhere. What's your family like? Well, it's hard to explain. My father and I were one. Uh, my job is to do the Father's will, but if you see me, you've seen the Father. Can you imagine meeting Jesus? That's kind of deep, Jesus. Oh, you have no idea. It says, but, but I'll explain it to you. So understand that. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? What's your family like? Shall we make it a little more confusing? It shouldn't be confusing. What do you do? When I meet a person, what do you do? They'll tell me different things. You ask Jesus, what do you do? He'll give you two quick answers. I'm the creator and I'm the life giver. What do we mean by creator? That's what we just read. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you want to put everything in the world into, one, into a list, you need two headers. Created, not created. The created list would be quite long. If you look outside, everything out there goes on the created list. You look in a mirror, everything goes on the created list. You look in here. Everything goes on the created list. One thing goes on the creator list. God. Guess which list God goes, or guess which list Jesus is going? Creator or created? Creator. You understand that? It's important to understand because we sometimes limit Jesus by assuming he was made by God. If we distort the truth of God just a little bit, we have a lie. And some lies are so subtle, we don't know what to do with them. For example, Mormons do not believe that Jesus is eternal. They believe that Jesus was the first creation of God the Father. He was created before the rest of creation, but Jesus was created by the Father. This was a revelation that Joseph Smith had in his, in his plate interpretation. If you speak to a Mormon person, they sound very much like a Bible-believing Christian. In fact, they live a lot more like a Bible-believing Christian than most people. But they make a small distortion of truth on who Jesus is, and everything falls apart after that. Do you understand that? Some people will say Jesus is certainly a way to heaven, but not the only way to heaven. Folks, understand this. You can believe whatever you want, but we need to understand Jesus is the only way to heaven because Jesus is God, and God can only speak truth. And the Bible is telling us very clearly that Jesus was not created by God. He was God. Jesus is also a life giver, we see in this section here too. Jesus came, John 10.10 10 tells us, to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. Think of Jesus like this. You build a house. You get the roofing on, the walls on, you do up the inside nice, you got everything finished up nice. It looks beautiful, okay? 
except for one thing. You look out the window and they have poles with electricity and none run to your house. You got to make a choice. Do you want to have electricity in the house or not? Or do you want light? Could you imagine how ridiculous it would be to build a beautiful house and to never run electricity to it when the wires are sitting right there and they'll be run for you if you just ask? That's what Jesus is. Jesus came to give light. You'll see as we go through that, the Gospel of John, the, the references to light. Light in John is symbolic of life and truth. It's, it's an archetype. It's a universally understood symbol. Some people say cynically to, to me, Oh, you became a Christian. You saw the light. They don't understand. Yeah, I really did. You kind of got it. And if I want to be nasty back, I say, yeah, I'm enlightened. Light is a term that, that has true, deep meaning. And John will unpack that for us as we go through. But understand, you can, you can grasp the concept with wires going to the house. You run the wires, you have light. You don't run the wires, you have darkness. It's a strong black and white dichotomy that we have here with Jesus. Life is good. Light is good and pure and true. Darkness is wicked, nasty, and evil. There is no middle ground. There is no a little bit of light. You can't shine a little bit of light into darkness. It's light or it's dark, and they don't cohabitate. Jesus is light. He came to give life, but the world didn't want to receive him. So, a little bit of a background there. Who is Jesus, right? Well, that's all great. But what do we have in common? When you meet a person at a party or at, a, at work or wherever, if you have nothing in common with them, you won't build much of a relationship with them. Not because you're not friendly. You just have to have some sort of commonality with people. So what do we have in common with Jesus? Anybody here eternal? Anybody God? Anyone on the creator list rather than the created list? Any life givers here? What the heck could we possibly have in common with Jesus? Understand that creator-created list. I have a little problem. Sometimes I want to put myself on the creator list as opposed to the created list. I want to be in charge and I want to dictate structure. I want to be the word. I want to be the, the ordering principle behind all of creation and make things happen just the way I want. And I'm not a mean guy. I'm a nice guy. I want things to happen in a certain way, in a certain order, because I think that they would be best. Guess what I'm trying to do? Shift lists. I think Jesus and I might have stuff in common because, hey, you can make all this stuff and control this stuff. Me too. Maybe not the make, but I can control it if you'll just let me. If you listen, God, I can give you some advice about how things should work, and it'll go great. It's a little problem I have. What Jesus and I have in common is he compensates my weaknesses. He doesn't compensate my weaknesses. He completes my weaknesses, and he completes all of our weaknesses. You and I have so much in common with Jesus, not by who we are, well, I guess by who we are, by what we need. See, it's a recent phenomenon that people have struggled with Jesus' uh, deity, the fact that he's God. Through most of human history, until very recently, and by recently I mean we're talking decades, not centuries, the biggest struggle people have had with Jesus was that he was a person. When Plato and Philo wrote, one of the things they taught was that that God could not have come down and become a person because the divine cannot dwell in the presence of humanity. It's too big of a gap. It would it be too dirty for deity to dwell with humanity. Very recently we've had this switch where people will accept Jesus' humanity but deny his deity. Meaning someone would say, oh, he was a good teacher. But he wasn't really God. That's a very recent phenomenon, folks. Understand this. What do we have in common with Jesus? 
He's one of us. Okay? Baby Jesus was, in fact, born on Christmas morning. Not December 25th, necessarily. It's when we celebrate it. But actually, God came down out of the heavens into the womb of a lady named Mary. And he became an actual, real, live, living, breathing human being who was fully God. How? Well, that's beyond our ability to explain. But it's very, very true. Jesus came down, and because he lived as a person, he knows our struggles. You know when you're going through a hard time, and you meet someone who's been through it too, and you're like, oh, I'm so glad I found someone who can relate to me. I'm so glad I found someone I can talk to. You understand. You understand what it's like to lose this, or to have this, or to struggle with this. Well, guess what, folks? Jesus understands too. He was no different than any of us, except for the sin thing. Jesus had no sin, but he had all of the, he experienced all the trials and emotions and struggles that we've had in our lives. He can relate. You understand that? What do we have in common with him? He's one of us. He's a person. Something else we have in common with him. He's a remedy for our malady. As we go through this gospel, you will see very clearly that we are all separated from God by sin. We could ignore that till till we draw our last breath, but it's a fact. And Jesus came down, not because he was sitting in heaven saying, Man, this is dull. It's just harps and angels and clouds. I want to do something new. That's not what heaven's like. Nobody misunderstand me there. Jesus was not bored looking to leave heaven and said one day, I'm going to become a man. And the Father says, Is this some sort of mid-eternity crisis you're having, son? No, I want to be a man, Dad. Jesus came down because there was a purpose behind it. He came down so that he could become one of us, so that he could be the perfect sacrifice who would die on the cross and shed his blood for our sins. Because he loved us so much, not because we merited it, not because we earned it, but simply because he loved us, he came down to die for us. He's one of us, and he's a remedy for our malady. Jesus also is, doesn't have, he is, the life we long for. When I, when I got out of college, out of high school between college, there was this phenomenon with, with friends that I knew from high school, they would take some time to find themselves. My dad told me, son, if you want to find yourself, I'll give you a mirror. <laughs> People in life struggle with understanding meaning and purpose. We all want significance to our lives. Now, we all want to do something meaningful because we all know one day we die. And when we die, is everyone just going to forget about us? Have we made any difference in the world? What was the point of life? Every single human, brain, human being needs to know an answer to that question. Unfortunately, many make out lies that they believe. If I accumulate a whole lot of money, then people remember me forever because I can build a big, big something or other. Well, guys did that in Egypt. They were called pyramids. How many pharaohs' names can you recall? If you can't remember a pharaoh by a pyramid, the wealth thing isn't going to give you a perpetuity of being known. Jesus, however, came so that we could have the life we long for. You want significance? I got 20 plus, I got 21 chapters that will explain a significant life to you. You want to have a life with meaning? Well, I can give you meaning for every single day of your life as I tell you what the Gospel of John says. If you want to know what the purpose of life is, well, the guy who was the Word, who's from the beginning, who's one of us, will tell us over the coming weeks what a substantial, meaningful, joyful life really is. He's one of us. He's a remedy for our malady. He's the life we long for. He's the truth we're looking for. Pilate said in the Gospels, what is truth? People nowadays scoff at the idea, ha, how could you even know truth? Truth is what you make truth. Truth is whatever you want it to be. What's true for you might not be true for me. Well, Jesus will tell us he is the word. He's the way and the 
truth. What is truth? It's Jesus. How do you know right from wrong? Why is something right and something else not right? Not because I determine it, not because you determine it. And if we want to live life determining right and wrong based off of preference or the preference of the majority, it gets real scary real quickly. But if we want to understand truth and right and wrong and good and bad, we need to look to Jesus to understand what it is because that is what he is. What do we have in common? He's the compass we need to get through life. The last thing we have in common with Jesus is he is the love we so desperately look for. Right? That's for flow. Men don't look for love, but flow, and some women do. Men do. It's a dirty secret. We just articulate it differently, and we don't speak of it the same way. But everyone, from the day they're born, has a need to be loved and cared for. And it doesn't stop when you hit a certain age. We just learn to, to put calluses around ourselves so we can get through life well. Jesus is that love we all desperately crave. We don't have to develop... Uh, crazy relationships. We don't have to go to substances. We don't have to indulge ourselves in material things to feel that. It's simply felt in knowing who Jesus is. Not just knowing intellectually, but getting to know him intimately. Here's an amazing thing about Jesus. When you start in the Bible, God created, God dwelt in heaven, and Adam and Eve were in the garden. God was down in their presence, and they messed up and ate this fruit stuff. Stinking Adam and Eve, right? And then the rest of the story of the Bible is how God works to restore people to himself. And people would always want to have God in their presence, in their midst. And it started way back with this tent of meeting thing. And you'd have people like Moses who would go and and they'd meet with God. Now they were not sitting across a table from God. Moses would be in the presence of God, because no one can see God's face. He'd be in the presence of God. And he'd come out of the tent of meeting and he'd have a glow such that he'd have to wear a veil over his face because his countenance changed by being in the presence of God. Then they built the tabernacle. It was a temple in a tent form. And God would dwell within the tabernacle, and the people could come into the presence of God and offer sacrifices and to restore proper relationships and atone for sins. And they could even hear from God in his presence. And then they built the temple, and we had the Holy of Holies. You remember that thing? The innermost section of the temple with the big, big curtain that no one went through. But the high priest once a year with a rope tied to his leg. And you remember why they tied the rope to his leg? Because if he died, they had to pull him out. Because you couldn't go in and get him. Because the awesome, mighty, all-powerful God's presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies. Well, guess what happened, folks? This guy named the Word, who was one of us, came down and dwelt as a person. Chuck Swindoll calls him God concarne. God with flesh. Jesus became a person. He didn't reside in the tabernacle or the tent of meeting or the Holy of Holies. He resided as a, not in a, as a person, a historical person who is no less real than anyone sitting in this room. If Jesus sat in this room, in fact, I think if he didn't speak, most of us might not recognize him because we have a lot of assumptions about what he might look like what he might act like, what he might sound like. If he spoke, I think we'd recognize him very quickly. But the fact of the matter is, there are two Jesuses. You're like, what? Uh Uh-oh. There's a Jesus we create, and there's the real Jesus. We're going to get to know the real Jesus and lose the Jesus we've created. God came down to dwell among us. He came down because he loves us. I think sometimes we struggle with a God. You know, people say that God in the Old Testament was a wicked, evil, vindictive God 
who killed people. He did that smote and stuff in Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone and the plagues on Egypt and the taking of the firstborn and all this stuff. But then God got really nice in the New Testament. He was friendly, loving, huggable God. Well, folks, remember Sodom and Gomorrah and the plagues in Egypt? What did we just say about Jesus? In the beginning was the Word. Jesus was not some distant kid outside of the workings of the Father. Oh, God was never wicked and nasty. There's a good reason God dealt with Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a good reason God dealt with the plagues of Egypt. And don't think God changed when it came to today. We've done a good job of presuming grace. God is very lovable and huggable, kind of. Moses didn't run up into the tent of meeting and just hang out with God across the table. There was a separation because you couldn't look into the face of God. God didn't dwell in the Holy of Holies because he was a high-paid, prestigious athlete who says, I'm not dealing with those people. Just one of you can come close. Sometimes I need my space. No, God is so awesome that you can't simply walk into his presence. Do you understand that? No one has ever seen the face of God because if you did, you would be no more. But yet in Jesus, we have God fully revealed. Understand the, the enormity of that statement. You have God dwelling as a person in history. We're going to examine that person's life. When you leave here today, here's my hope. That you will understand some facts about Jesus. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is a creator and a life giver. Jesus is one of us. Jesus has a lot in common with us based off of things we need and physically who we are. That's a lot of stuff about Jesus. What I've done nothing of today at all is help us understand who Jesus is intimately. To understand why he loves us. To understand how we are to relate to him. How he relates to us. Folks, God is not a distant deity. God is not a scary deity. God isn't just like your dad. Unfortunately, most people create an image of God based off of their fathers. If you had a bad, nasty father, you got a bad, nasty God. If you had an overly affectionate, undisciplinary father, you got a Santa Claus-like God. God isn't like your earthly father. God is perfect. And we're going to get to know that perfect God who dwelt among us. But we can't do that without this foundation of understanding who he is. I think you will be shocked as we go through the Gospel of John who Jesus really is. We're going to look at the signs that Jesus did, such as changing water to wine in Canaan. And when you see why he did that, you're going to say, Oh my gosh, he really loves me. We're going to look at, at Jesus as he relates to his disciples. We're going to look at Jesus as he feeds the multitudes. We're going to look at Jesus as he has beatings inflicted upon him and he hangs on a cross. We're going to look at Jesus after the cross. And as we do this, we're going to not only have facts about Jesus, we're going to know a person. Now I've known some of you people almost four years now. Hopefully those people could articulate a bunch of facts about me. You know where I grew up. You know what my name is. You know what football team I like. You know what type of food I eat. It's five Oreos a night with a glass of milk, in case you didn't know. You know stuff about me. But just knowing stuff about me doesn't help you know me. And it doesn't help me know you. We're called to develop deep relationships with people as Christians, especially within the context of a biblical fellowship of church. That doesn't just happen by a share in information. That takes time. Do you know why we do that? Because it is in some way a representation of how we are to relate to God. We are called to know God deeply and personally. Isn't that an incredible concept? The God of the universe wants to develop a personal, intimate relationship 
with each and every one of us. You know why? Because he's infatuated with us. Not in a strange way. God loves us so stinking much that he wants us to love him back so he could care for us perfectly. How does he do that? He sent Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, I've told you some facts about it. If you come back next week and the week after and the week after that, for however many long it takes, we will get to know him very, very well. When we finish the Gospel of John, my hopes is that the Jesus we know is far different and far more true than the one we know today. Let's pray. Father God, I I thank you so much for the fact that you sent Jesus. I thank you so much for the fact that you love us. God, we cannot fully understand why you love us or how much you love us, but we can sure get a good-sized glimpse of it. We can do that as we look at the life of your Son. We can come to know who you are as we get to know Jesus more fully, because he tells us that's what happens. We can have life and have it abundantly. We can have living water and the bread of life. We can have all that we ever need. We can know our perfect purpose day by day. We can glorify you. We can prepare for an eternity in heaven with you, whereby you'll greet us with a well done, my good and faithful servant. We can look back and have a life of no regrets. God, we can have everything we've ever dreamed of and far more as we come to get to know you, as we come to believe in you. Not believe about you, but believe in you. God, I pray that you would take us as a people who struggle with knowing you and knowing about you to a people who truly believe and trust in you. That you would work in those areas where we have doubt, where you would work in those areas that we have distrust, that you would work in those areas where we've become complacent with our current level of sin. And through us knowing Jesus more fully, you would help us have a passion to get rid of anything in our life that wasn't pleasing to you and go full bore, jump overboard for you to trust you, God, to take that uncomfortable step after step and know that you will catch us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that you will provide for us perfectly, and in fact, you will do it all in abundance. It doesn't mean you'll fill our bank accounts as high as we want them, but you'll fill them to a far more perfect place than we could ever imagine. Sometimes that's less than we'd expect, and sometimes that's far more. It doesn't mean you'll give us everything relationally that we want. Same thing, God, sometimes it's far less, sometimes it's far more, but as we look back, we know it's perfect because your ways are perfect and always true. Help us know your Son more fully, God, so we can trust you more, so that we can know you are always faithful, always trusting, always perfect, and that you love us beyond measure. Help us love you too, God. Through Jesus' name we pray. Amen.